I don't know if you caught it or not, but at the beginning of, um, of Adam's video there, he made the comment, I want to be a broken vessel that God can put back together the way he wants to. Um, that's perfect with what we're going to talk about today. Here in a few moments, we're going to open our Bibles to the book of Acts. And actually, you can go ahead and take your Bibles and turn there. Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to be here in just a couple of moments. But I want to be a broken vessel that God can put back together the way he wants to. Um, I don't think there's very many prayers that could be any greater than that. God, put me together the way you want me to be. Before we get started this morning, I want to mention um, something that the vast majority of you already know, but John Newsom was promoted to heaven this past Friday morning. Uh, John was 96 years old. He actually had his birthday last Tuesday. He turned 96 a couple of weeks ago, uh, he would have celebrated his uh, 75th anniversary. Edith, his wife, passed away just over a year and a half ago, right a, a year and a half ago. But um, John has been a part of our church since day one. In fact, I think he was three months old when he was first here, and then he has been a faithful member of our church ever since. A couple of times I had the opportunity to, to talk with him or to sit in his home, and, and he'd tell me the story of his life. He's mentioned how the only time he was ever not at Salem was when he was away in the military uh, for different assignments, different times. Uh, But uh, folks, what a testimony of being faithful to not only God, and there is absolutely that, but a testimony of being faithful to the church. And I am thankful to have been able to know John. And, and folks, I want to challenge you in two ways with, along with that. One, be praying for the Newsom family as they work through this grieving process. But then secondly, I want to I challenge you to, if at all possible, to attend a memorial service, a celebration service on Tuesday uh, at Hayworth Miller Funeral Home, the chapel there. There's going to be a vig- visitation from 1030 in the morning to about 1145 with a service being for, uh, at 12 o'clock. And we're going we're gonna to come together and we're going to celebrate the legacy, the memory of, of John Newsom. But I'm excited about that time for us to be together that day. Uh, pray for, remember, pray for the Newsom family in this. You're in uh, Acts chapter 6. In a couple of moments, we're going to look at a very specific story. Last week, Skip Furrow shared with us a wonderful message about depression, but, but even deeper than just the topic of depression itself, he talked about digging a trench in our minds and in our lives that is full of the, good, of, the, of the grace and full of the goodness of God. And I hope you were challenged by that message as I was. We're in this series throughout 2019 that looks at God's story and how we fit into God's story. At any point in our lives, our stories can change drastically. In fact, one little decision can forever change the narrative of our lives. Here's an example of, of kind of what I'm talking about. How many of you recognize the name Oscar Pistorius? Oscar Pistorius, okay. Well, I'm going to give you a recap of some of you are going to go, oh yeah, I know that name. Um, he was, uh, for, for many years, a name that much of the world knew just because of his success as a professional runner. When he was just 11 months old, both of his feet were amputated due to a medical condition that he had. But in spite of losing his feet, Pistorius went on to win in both disabled and non-disabled racing events as he became an adult. He's even able to uh, participate in the 2012 Summer Olympics, and in that time he, he finished 16th overall in the events that, uh, that he was running in. 
Everything was set for Pistorius to have a life story that other people could only dream of having. Until one day um, he was arrested for killing his girlfriend. Now, according to Pistorius, he shot her while, um, or he shot what he thought was an intruder in his home, and it turned out to be his girlfriend. According to the jury, he was guilty of murder and is right now serving out the sentence for that murder. At any point in our lives, our story can change drastically. Now, that's, that change could come in the, in, in the form of a um, birth. You know, we have a child that, that comes to us, and immediately our story changes. It could come in the form of a marriage, or it could come in the form of a divorce. Our story could change when a death takes place and a family member that's close to us. Our story could change when we have a job and, and maybe we make great decisions with that job and, and, and it elevates us to a level of being able to be successful at that job. Or maybe in a job we have a moment in which all of a sudden our, our feet fall off from under us and we fall flat on our face and maybe we lose our job or we lose everything that we had been building for. But at any point in our lives, our stories can change drastically. In a moment, we're going to see an example in the Bible, of a story that changed drastically. There's another story that came back during the mid-1500s that I want to tell you about. In fact, February 10th, 1554, it's two days before Lady Jane Grey is killed. The Catholic chaplain, John Feckenham, enters Jane's cell in the Tower of London in the hopes of saving her soul, or so he thinks. Queen Mary, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, you've heard that name before, had already signed her cousin Jane's death warrant, but she sent her seasoned chaplain to see if he could woo Jane back to Rome and to Catholicism before her ex- execution. Jane is about 17 years old at this time. Well, there's a charged debate that follows. Feckenham, the Catholic apologist, and Jane, the Reformed teenager, he presses that justification comes by faith and works. She stands her ground on sola fide, or faith alone. He asserts that the Eucharist, bread, and wine are the very body and blood of Christ. She maintains that the elements symbolize Jesus' saving work. He affirms the Catholic Church's authority alongside Scripture. She insists that the Church sits underneath the piercing gaze of God's Word. I am sure we too shall never meet again, Feckenham finally tells Jane, implying her damnation. But Jane turns the warning back on him by saying, Truth it is, we shall never meet again unless God turns your heart. Lady Jane had reluctantly taken the throne uh, not long before this, July 10th, 1553, and willingly left the throne just nine days later, July the 19th, 1553, when Mary gathered an army to depose her cousin queen. So Jane is often remembered by a number. uh, The nine days queen is what she's known as. February the 7th, 1554, Mary signed the death warrant that would lead Jane to the scaffold just five days later. In addition to sparring with Feckenham, Jane spent her final days preparing a brief speech for her execution and sending some last remarks. On the inside of her Greek New Testament, she wrote to her younger sister, Catherine, these words, "'This is the book, dear sister, of the law of the Lord.'" It is his testament and last will, which he bequeathed unto us wretches, which shall lead you to the path of eternal joy. And as touching my death, rejoice as I do, good sister, that I shall be delivered of this corruption and put on incorruption. For I am assured that I shall, for losing of a mortal, mortal life, win an immortal life. The morning of February the 12th brought Jane to the wall of the eternal, or excuse me, the central 
white tower, where a small crowd and an executioner awaited her arrival. Turning to the onlookers, Jane announced, I do look to be saved by no other mean, but only by the mercy of God in the blood of His only Son, Jesus Christ. She then knelt down and recited Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. Once blindfolded, Jane groped her way to the execution block and laid her head in its groove. The last sound the crowd heard before the axe thudded into the block was a prayer from Jane's 17-year-old voice, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And so ended the life of Lady Jane Grey, the teenage martyr. Today we're going to turn our attention to a story that marks the turning point in the life of the church. The book of Acts is the story of the expansion of Jesus' church. The expansion, though, didn't come without difficulty, difficult circumstances. And, and this is a difficult circumstance we're going to talk about today that would have rocked the church. We're going to start out in Acts chapter 6 by seeing something that is important to God. Okay, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Let's start reading together. Here's what it says. Actually, let's, uh, let's do this. We haven't done this in a while. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word if you're able to do so? Acts chapter 6, reading in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Hey, would you bow in prayer with me? Our Father, I come to you, and I ask that in these moments you make your word clear to us. Our Father, we know what it says. We can read what it says. But then, Father, understanding it and applying it to our lives is where we need the Holy Spirit to come alongside of us and assist us. In these moments, Father, would we be distracted by nothing except um, may our attention be wholly devoted to you. We love you, Father. We only love you because you first loved us. We thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. And it's in his holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we get into to the passages we're really going to look at the most this morning, um, we've got to understand something. We've got to understand a, a foundational reality. And here's the foundational reality that, that I want to share with you. It's this, that God cares about the physical needs of his children. God cares about the physical needs of his children. Now, in the passage we just read, there is a great need. There's some discrimination that's taking place between the Hebrew Jews and the Greek Jews. In fact, a Hellenist is the word that's used there. A Hellenist is a Greek-speaking Jew. The Hellenist widows aren't receiving care for their physical needs the way all the other widows are. So the apostles, and I believe they do this according to the leading of the Holy Spirit, they put a plan in place to make sure that all the believers are taken care of well. And they raise up seven men to oversee the waiting of tables and the, the distribution of the food and the care of the believers. Now, here's the deal. 
we are about to enter into a passage of Scripture, a section of Scripture, in which it would be easy for us to assume that God doesn't care about the believers at all. Because what we see happen here is, 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 is difficult. It's hard. But listen, um, we're about to see this, this launch of the persecution that takes place in the New Testament church. But before we get to that point, I love the way the, 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 the Scriptures line this up for us, is that we clearly see God providing for the physical needs of believers before we get to that. Now, you might be here today, and you may be experiencing a difficult time right now. Maybe it's a time of, of heartbreak for you. Maybe it's a time where you think, God doesn't care about me. God doesn't know what's going on. Um, I am stuck in this by myself. But can I tell you that there is nothing that is further from the truth? Because what we see is that God truly does care about us as believers. And, and I pulled out one passage here right before where we jump into the persecution of the church. But if you look at the Bible, you see over and over and over again that God truly does care for mankind, especially those that he calls his children. God cares about them. Folks, we know without a doubt we can trust God in the difficult times because there's been times in the past in which he has proven himself already. All right? Hold on to that. Never let go of the fact that God is a good God, always. The evil in this world does not negate his goodness, ever. The evil in this world does not negate the goodness of God. So with that, let's pick up reading in verse 8. So verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and, um, and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Folks, as we work through this passage of Scripture this morning, I would like to present to you a model of persecution. A model of persecution. Because it's, it's rampant. All over the world right now, Christians are being persecuted. But here's oftentimes how it happens. First of all, you have a believer. A believer who is full of grace and power is what we read here. A believer who is full of grace and power. That's what we read about Stephen. Now, this, isn't, this power, this grace isn't coming from himself. It's coming from the working of the Holy Spirit inside of him. And in fact, he's so full of the Holy Spirit that he's doing things that are supernatural. We read there, great wonders and signs are being done among the people through Stephen. That is exactly what a follower of Jesus should look like. Now, I believe that God supernaturally gifted the early church believers in ways that he doesn't always gift them today. But all believers should be marked by grace and, and power because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. That was certainly Stephen. This is the second time that he specifically called out as, as someone with exceptional spirituality. In fact, you go back to read verse 5. You see when they're raising these men up, these seven men, he's described as a person who is full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. For some reason, he is, he is characterized in that way apart from all the other men. Why? Because I believe he truly was exceptional in his spirituality. 
So the first step in this model for the persecution is that the believer is filled with grace and power. By the way, I want to pause here for a moment. Before we get to the second point, um, let me mention this. It might be that we don't experience much persecution sometimes because we're not marked by great grace and great spiritual power. In fact, um, why would Satan even attempt to come after us if we are lackadaisical, if we ride the fence, if we're lukewarm? Why would he do that? Because he knows we're not operating within the power that God gives us. But where Satan chooses to attack is the believers that are full of the grace and full of the power, understanding exactly who they are in Christ and what Christ can do through them in the working of the Holy Spirit. That is where Satan chooses to attack. This is just food for thought, but it might be that we don't experience any persecution because we're not a threat to Satan. And we're not a threat to the power or a threat to the powers of darkness. Here's the second step in this model for persecution. Opponents could not withstand the gospel. The opponents could not withstand the gospel. Verse 10 there says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So you've got the believer who is full of grace and power, but now you've got the opponents who cannot withstand that power. It's driving them crazy the way Stephen is such a dynamic minister to the people around him. These opponents are fighting against Stephen using their brilliant minds and were unable to beat him in a religious debate. The members of the synagogue that was talked about here are from a couple of different areas that are known for their philosophy and they're known for their ability to debate. You got individuals from, from northern Africa there in Cyrene and Alexandria. You got some individuals from Asia, which at that point would have been the western portion of what is today modern day Turkey. Then you got Cilicia, which, which, is, which is where um, the Apostle Paul is from. Uh, Tarshish. You've heard Paul is from Tarshish, where Tarshish is the capital of Sicilia. All of these cities and areas are known for their ability to put out great thinkers and, and philosophers. And these great thinkers are engaging Stephen in a debate, but they cannot withstand the argument of the gospel that Stephen presents them with. Folks, here's something that we should never forget. We tend to get caught up in, in, in vain arguments. Right? Or we just tend to get caught up in, in just passivity. You know what? I just won't even worry about talking about it. Or I won't even worry about being engaged here. But what Stephen does is he engages these people in conversation, even when it may cost him his life. Now, he doesn't know that at this time, but it's going to lead to that. Folks, there is nothing that can withstand the power and the truth of the gospel. The message of how Jesus came to this earth to live the perfect life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserve to die because of our sin. And how Jesus went through this life and went through that death. And he went all the way to the resurrection in which he was raised, giving us a victory over life. That is where the power comes from. The power doesn't lie in me as a human being and my ability to share it. The power is already there and it comes through us, through the Holy Spirit. Stephen's in front of some of the most brilliant minds in the world. Yet they cannot withstand the legitimacy of the argument that Stephen is making. They can't uphold or they can't stand up with, under the, the apparent truth, what Stephen is saying, even though they have far superior intellects and training. Folks, here's a lesson for us. Um, we need to stop messing around and just share 
the beautiful good news about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The power is found in the message of Jesus. It's not found in us. It's found in the message. So let's be faithful in sharing it. However, um, in, in, in sharing that message sometimes, there's going to be times that it leads to persecution. That's what happens next here with, with Stephen. You got the believer who is full of grace and power. You got the opponent, right? The, the one who is in opposition to, or they could not withstand the gospel. But now here's the third step in this model for persecution. You've got instigation against the believer. Get instigation against the believer. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Stephen has proven that he is a man who is on fire for God. The gospel has so impacted him that he is full of grace and power. Any attempt to sway Stephen or to silence him has been unsuccessful to this point. Even though those people trying to do so are super smart, they just haven't been able to beat him in a debate. So what do they do? They convince people to lie about Stephen. Since the inception of the church, Christians have been the brunt of injustice like we see right here with Stephen. Since the inception of the church, persecution of believers often comes in the form of people making up lies about those believers. Entire nations are sometimes incited against Christians by their governments with the accusation accusation that that maybe Christians are trying to hijack the government or they're trying to change a way of, of life. And so whole nations are incited into violence against Christians. In colleges, it's nothing for a professor Um, who is an unbeliever, to single out a believer and in doing so oftentimes bring the rest of the class against that one believer. This happens oftentimes. You know, as I think about this and the idea of injustice that comes with Christianity, I go back to what Jesus had to say about persecution to his followers. He's on the Sermon on the Mount and he's preaching to these people and here's what he says in Matthew 5.11. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus said that exactly what's happening with Stephen was going to happen. He knew that people were going to say things that were not true. He knew at the very least that there was going to be times that people twisted the truth in trying to turn others against the believer. He knew that that was going to happen. That's why he said what he had to say right here in Matthew 5. But then what we see last in this model For persecution is a gathering of opponents. You see, before there's just a few people that are against Stephen. But what they're doing now is they're pulling people in, the mass in against Stephen. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Folks, they have taken their anger and their frustration public, and it's about to cost Stephen his life. Now, I want to to pause here for just a second and and point this out. It says there that um, they went and they stirred up who? They stirred up the people. The elders, the religious elders, the scribes, all of these are religious people, right? Sometimes Jesus calls us to do things that go against the grain of what is 
customary or normal. The very nature of being saved by grace through faith goes against the grain of what is normal for religions. You see, in in religions all throughout the world, um, there is a God of some kind. And if we do enough good, then that God is happy with us and we can earn our way to heaven or to paradise, whatever it is. That's what they teach. But in Christianity, something completely different happens. In Christianity, we have a Savior who's already come and done all the works that need to be done in order for us to be saved and to have a right relationship with God. And all that's required for us is to step out in faith and say, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I'm in need of a Savior. God, I need you to save me. And then after salvation, then we don't work so that we can be saved. We work, we serve God, we are faithful to God because we are saved. These religious leaders had no concept of what that looked like. None whatsoever. So as they are are angry with Stephen, they are angry because all of a sudden something has come on the scene that's completely different from anything that they've ever seen before. And their anger is because, oh, my customs or what I'm used to or my traditions are being thrown out, and this man is a heretic because he's saying that they are no longer in effect and that I can have life and a relationship with God through a man, through Jesus. And what happens is this opposition comes against Stephen. Folks, the opposition is not always going to come, come from people who may be considered pagans. The opposition, the persecution is not always going to come from people who are in outright defiance to God. Sometimes that persecution, sometimes that, that, that pushing back is going to come from people who say they love God and who are committed to him, but yet they don't get grace by faith alone through Jesus. As I was just reading through that passage just now, I realized sometimes we can turn on each other and we can persecute each other when we should not. We keep our eyes on Jesus, on preaching Jesus, or preaching the gospel, the whole gospel of Jesus. Not holding on to the things that we, we know to, to be our customs. Not holding on to the things that make us comfortable. Stephen went way outside his comfort zone, and what it's gotten him is nothing but a whole bunch of trouble. But what it's going to get him, and you're going to see this in just a moment, what it is going to get him is a place in heaven under the acceptance of Jesus Christ. All right, we're going to keep reading. We're going to see that here in just a moment. Actually, let's jump down to verse 51. We can see this. Verse 51. Uh, Stephen has, uh, chapter 7, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 51. In verses 1 through 50 of chapter 7, Stephen um, kind of launches out in this, in this um, speech in which he is doing nothing but reminding the people of, here's what took place in, in, in the Old Testament. He doesn't say anything about the current circumstance or situation that he's in, but all of a sudden that changes when you get to verse 51. And I love this. He speaks directly to what's taking place. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. (laughs) Stephen, did you not know that they're about to kill you, man? (laughs) You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. 
you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Folks, you talk about boldness in the middle of great danger. That's Stephen. He's an incredible example of what it means to boldly proclaim Jesus even when it means death. He turns this whole argument around and says, listen, you are defying God with your actions. He's speaking truth into their lives. Let's keep reading in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. That was a sign of, of their anger. You know, when you're angry, when you're super angry, you clench your jaw. They're, they're doing that publicly, grinding their teeth at Stephen. But he, verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, that's the second time we've seen that, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at, at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We're going to talk about Saul next week. We're going to talk about how God changes Saul's life. Let's continue reading here with Stephen. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, at the beginning, I talked about how one event can drastically change a person's story. I want you to think about the life of Stephen here for a moment. Think about the, the story of Stephen. The story of Stephen up to this point would have been that he was a really good guy, that he was a really good guy who was saved. That as a saved person, he lived as a sent person. That as a sent person, he did everything he could to care for the needs of the people around him. That as a sent person, he did everything that he could to share the gospel with the people around him. Okay, that was Stephen's story. But then all of a sudden, there's this event that has completely changed Stephen's story. In fact, when we think Stephen today, we think the first martyr. The first one who was killed for the sake of the gospel, right? That's what I think of when, when I think of Stephen. Folks, this story of Stephen it was all well and good, and then all of a sudden it ends with a brutal death at the hands of an angry mob. Now from this point, as we, as we look ahead in the story, we see Saul, soon to be Paul. Like I said, we're going to talk about him next week. We see this great persecution of the church that is launched out this very single, this very day. See that starting in, verse, in chapter 8. Saul is, is dragging people from their homes and he's imprisoning them. There's this great persecution that takes place. Up to this point, the church had been centrally located right here in the city of Jerusalem. But God's story is about to be taken outside Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And it won't be too long to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Why? Because of the persecution that starts right here with Stephen. God's story has just changed with one event that has taken place. I want, to, I want to close out our time together here today with a couple of thoughts regarding suffering, regarding persecution, and the death of a believer in general, okay? And here's the first thought that I want to start with, and that is that martyrdom is part of God's will. Martyrdom is part of God's will. Now, that makes God seem like a mean, cold God, doesn't it? Makes it seem like a God who doesn't care about people who are committed even to the death to him. But that's not at all the case. 
Because if there's anything that we know about God, and it's this that suffering produces an increased knowledge for us of the love of God. We come to understand the love of God more. And we may not see it in the moment, but after a while, if we can take a step back and we can look at all the suffering that we're looking at in, in life, we can see that I love God more and I see the love of God more because of the suffering that I've, that I, I've, I've experienced. Martyrdom it has a way of expanding the gospel in ways that it never would have otherwise. And here's a couple of examples that you might recognize. In 2001, there was a man and his wife and their son and their unborn daughter, uh, unborn child, along with their pilot, who was flying from one area of Peru to another. You might recognize the name of Ronnie Bowers. This airplane that they were traveling in was shot down by a Peruvian uh, government jet. Now, they were missionaries serving God there in um, Peru, and it was a, it was a, it was a, gross injustice that took place with this. The world was enraged. It was all over the national news everywhere. But what took place from that is that thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people came to know um, what they were there about. And many of them probably came to know Christ as a result of what took place. We've got the classic example of 1956 when there's five missionaries who go to the beaches of Ecuador to take the gospel to an unreached people group. They land there on that beach, and uh, they're instantly killed for the sake of the gospel. We have no idea now how many hundreds of thousands of people have come to know Christ because they were killed, because they were martyred for the sake of the gospel. Right now, all over the world, there are over 245 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution. This is, between, this is just between um, November of 2017 and October of 2018. 4,305 Christians were killed during that time for their faith. 1,847 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 3,150 believers are detained without trial. They're arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. Yet I think about, when I think about this, this persecution, this martyrdom that takes place among Christianity, I can't help but think of James in James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, where he says, Hey, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." Folks, we can count it all joy when persecution comes because we know that suffering is a part of God's plan and it's going to result in his glory and our good. Now, for some Christians, persecution is going to result in them seeing Jesus face to face. Some will be martyred. They will die as martyrs for their faith. But, and this applies to anybody who's a believer, not just people who die or believers who die as martyrs, but there are certain things that are going to happen when you die. A martyr who for the first time departs this earth, their soul departs this earth and they are in the presence of Jesus. There's some things that are going to happen. But also, if you are a believer and, and you die in general, there are some things that are going to happen. And this is where we keep our eyes. Just like Stephen, this is where we keep our eyes. I think about John Newsom, and he passed away this past Friday. When he passed away, there was a few things that took place that were, that were amazing, nothing short of amazing. First of all, when a believer dies, they see the glory of God. 
They see the glory of God. Stephen, um, in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, it, it, it tells us that Stephen is about to die, and he gazes up into heaven, and he sees the glory of God. That glory that we're told over and over again in Scripture, that if any man lays his eyes on the glory of God, on God himself, then he will die. All of a sudden, when that soul departs the body in the presence of God, you see and you can feel and you can know without a doubt the glory of God. It completely takes over you. That's what happens when a believer dies. Secondly, when a believer dies, they are welcomed by Jesus. They are welcomed by Jesus. Stephen saw Jesus sitting at the right, or excuse me, standing at the right hand of God, welcoming him in. That's really interesting because every other time that uh, there's a reference to where Jesus is at in heaven, all throughout the New Testament, it's referenced him sitting at the right hand of God. But here is the only time in which Jesus is seen standing at the right hand of God. And I firmly believe that he is standing there and he is welcoming Stephen in as the first of millions of martyrs for the sake of the gospel. He is welcoming Stephen in. When a believer dies, they see the glory of God. They are welcomed by Jesus. Then lastly, when a believer dies, they receive the assurance of Jesus. They receive the assurance of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, had this to say. He had this to say about when we get to heaven someday. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now... On this earth, I only know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In other words, just as Jesus has fully known everything about me, there's coming a day in which I'm going to fully know everything there is to know about Jesus. There is coming a day in which the confusion of this world is going to pass away, and that, ref- that confusion is going to be replaced with crystal clear sight and understanding. In closing, there's one more thing I want to point out. The name Stephen in Greek means crown. Stephen means crown in Greek. In Greece, a crown is given to anyone who overcomes. A crown is given to anyone who overcomes. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Stephen overcame the world not by experiencing what we would typically call blessing, but by dying faithful to Jesus with his eyes fixed upon the risen Christ. Christian, listen, be faithful to God. Not so that you can earn heaven, because honestly, there's not enough good that you can do on this earth to earn heaven. But be faithful to God because he has been faithful to you. Just like Stephen, fix your eyes on the risen Jesus and hold on to him. Not only is the author of your faith, he did that, he, he began your faith, but hold on to him knowing that he is also the finisher of our faith. You be faithful to Jesus just like he is faithful to you. Would you bow in in, in prayer with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for Stephen, the first martyr. Father, we know that this world is going to bring um, persecution. It's going to bring difficulty. Father, we have it fairly easy here when it comes to physical persecution. But that may not always be the case. And Father, as we think ahead at at, at suffering and we think about the fact that there will be times in which um, we're going to suffer for the, the faith, 
Father, may we use the the example here of, of Stephen and his faithfulness to you. Father, use it as a a tool with which to understand your goodness, to understand your sovereignty, to understand that you know all things and you've got all things in your hand. Father, may we hold on to you and never let go. We look forward to seeing the ways you use us in the good times, the easy times, but also, Father, in in the bad or the difficult times. We love you, Father, and we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.